forever. Dog. And this is what's kept me balanced in this business. Um, things just pass. I was having dinner uh, at one night at a restaurant near the old CBS radio station on, on Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles. And I said, the last time I was up here, I was waiting online for the Jack Benny show. I said this to the waiter, and he said, who? You know. And I figured, okay, it passes. It passes. No matter how famous you are, how much money you make, it passes. So just enjoy the hell of it while you can, you know? Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from The Big Bang Theory or Speechless or one recent episode of ABC's The Rookie. Our guest today is Robert Towers. Now, Robert works very often under prosthetics or makeup or CGI, so we might be pushing the limits of the category of household faces, but I'm so glad we did. For one thing, I'm a Gen X kid. Robert Towers was a banana split. So right out of the gate, you have my full attention. He is also a musical theater luminary and did the L.A. premiere of Your Good Man Charlie Brown with Gary Berghoff back in the 70s. He's also Brad Pitt's body double for a rather significant chunk of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. He's Karg in the old Masters of the Universe uh, film. He is on a really good episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. It's a great talk. I'm really, really glad we had him on the show. Also, he's 85 years old and exercises absolutely every day. What is my excuse? Please welcome Robert Towers. Robert Towers, thank you uh, so much for, for joining us on Household Faces. We were just, before we started, we were talking about John Astin, who was a previous guest on the show. Yes. and. And we were both yes. bemoaning the fact that he's not in the new West Side Story, despite being in the Robert Wise version. Yeah, uh, well, you know, with with Rita Marino in it, I was hoping maybe they'd get somebody else from the old film, and you know, kind of just even in bits, nostalgic bits for people who would love to have him see. walk by in the course, background during America. The What's the harm in having him walk yeah. by in the background during America? Wave at the camera. Yeah, you know? maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah, something maybe a little more subtle than that. But yeah, um, uh, I there's yeah. so much to discuss um, about your career, Robert, but I'm going to start with what is in some ways one of your biggest credits, although we can't quite make out your face, um, which is Benjamin Button, the David Fincher <laughs> film, where you yeah. are yes. Brad Pitt's body when the character is, and I'm going to make this as clear, I mean, if you've seen the film, you know how hard this is to describe, but the character is a 12-year-old with the body of a 70-something that's yeah the idea is he's going backwards he starts old and goes backwards it was a, from a story written in the 20s mm -hmm. i believe and uh it's um and what they decided to do was just you know have someone of various sizes play the character uh, uh the before me there's 
uh, a very small man. He's, he's kind of a little guy about four foot six. And he played him as a as a child, and there's a whole big scene with him. And then they that's the one where he he's the guy who learns time. to walk at the revival tent, right? The guy before you. The that's the other guy who did that, right? Right. And yeah. you're the guy because who, who I falls come in, in love at us. Yes. Right. And I meet, um, uh, yeah, the the female character later played by Kate Blanchett. Right and played by by uh, wait a minute I, I gotta it. get this right Elle Fanning mm-hmm. that's Elle correct Fanning, Elle my Fanning. first leading lady who happened to be nine years old at the time <laughs> <laughs> you know in any other context that's the grossest sentence you've ever said but um <laughs> oh horrible um, <laughs> but yeah so I was gonna I, I'm gonna yeah okay tell me how they did that visually they they just virtually had me do the entire thing. David Fincher directed me as if I were Brad Pitt. As a matter of fact, anybody came on the set, I used to have to apologize for not being Brad Pitt because, you know, these people would come on expecting to work with Brad. (laughs) And there am I, all five foot two of me said, (laughs) but um, I would apologize, then we get into it. Um, I even had people, an old, uh, the, the lady who played the grandmother originally, they've changed the part about three times but the original lady said mr towers how can you do this you're not nobody sees your face and i said yes but this is such a wonderful project it's such a great idea i love this whole thing so in any case i did the whole thing fincher directed me reminded me constantly of brad pitt how how quiet he is his quiet insides you know how very silent and and then I, we worked, and then in the somehow in special effects they removed the face. You know, it was. A, by the way, I did it in a hoodie with little marks on it. So you know, oh okay, a, 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 what they call motion capture, mm-hmm. and so that uh, they'd even do a scene with me in it, and then remove me from the scene, have them play it with me not there, so they could work. I mean, it's it was such a remarkable experience. I did this for six months, you know. And six it was months. Absolutely remarkable. And six months on and off between New Orleans and Los Angeles. Yeah. we. And when I came back to LA and we went to uh, what had been MGM, it's now Sony Studios, they had built the exact set that we had in New Orleans. I couldn't believe it because we were in an actual house in New Orleans. Right. This old house that they used as uh, Taraji Henson's uh, boarding house. The, the and, old nursing home, yeah. Um, I couldn't believe it. Ever, yeah, and, and so what they, they would, we, we shot it again here for scenes for pickups and all kinds of things. We did a special effects scenes. It was just astonishing. Um, I had this great feeling. You know, here I am playing this great part and nobody will ever see it. The nicest thing that happened after we finished was that I met the editors of the film and they said, we wish you could see what we've been watching. I wish oh, other people wow. could see your performance, which made me feel very good. But I owe a lot to David Fincher. As a matter of fact, I had been act. You know, I was seventy years old. I'm eighty-five now. I, I had been. I was seventy years old when we did it, and um, it was just amazing how how youthful this character has to be. And and I learned so much by working with David Fincher because a lot of my career had been in the theater. And, you know, mm-hmm. I was Snoopy for two and a half years. And, but um, Fincher 
was so wonderful about, he would do this thing about a little less, a little less, a little less. I'm sure you're familiar with that being an actor yourself. Um, That he wanted this character to be so real, and I did too. And I thought, oh gosh, I'm being so subtle. And it was never quite enough. And Mr. Finch has a tendency to want to take a lot of takes to be sure he gets Famously so, yeah. Yeah, the first day on the set we were shooting and I had to go into a scene where I meet my father, not knowing my father's car comes by. I'm supposed to go in the car. It turns out to be the guy who's my dad. Um, And Finch said, come here. I said, yes. He can be a little brusque, but he he doesn't, that's kind of his style. And he said, I want you to look at this monitor. And he had the monitor all up. He said, look at that. And I look at it and I see myself walking into a car. He said, do you see what you're doing? I said, no. He said, take a good look. I said, no, what? He said, you're being cute. You're one of those actors that's gotten by because you're short and you got by by being cute all your career of it. If it takes me the rest of my life, I'm going to get the cute out of you or one of us is going to die in the attempt. And it was great. I loved that. And I said, I'll do it again. And what I did was he taught me behavior because as you know film acting is behavioral yeah it's not acting like we are on stage where we have to project and no, all that no, sort no. of thing it is just being being and so i owe david fincher and i've been managed to work since <laughs> because of david fincher what he taught me what how he taught me uh I will be forever grateful to them. No, it's just so exciting to hear somebody who be like, oh yeah, I was I was on the set, I was 70, I learned this great thing. Uh, and it's just such, it's so nice to hear people. You never stop learning. You never stop, well, no, you shouldn't stop learning, but there's plenty of people that you and I have worked with who have like, you know, I figured out my tricks, I'm all set. I'm 30, I got it all set, I'm, I got it, I'm good. Um, and you can become, that's how people become kind of hacky and they, they lose their joy and they lose the freshness in their performances. I never have lost the joy of it. It's always fun no matter what it is. I, you know, if you play a monster as I've done or if you play this Benjamin or the dog, whatever, it's always been fun because, you know, we could be doing something else. That's a lot harder. Yeah, precisely. Well, I yeah, I always, I mean, in my worst day on set, I'm freezing cold. I'm, I'm you know, I'm worried that my mic pack is going to electrocute me. I'm always like, you know what? You're not temping. Um, what um, uh, <laughs> how, did you Now I'm really curious about the the three levels of performance in Benjamin Button. We're going to I'm not going to spend the whole hour on this, but I am very curious because you are playing Brad Pitt, playing a 12 year old inside the body of a 70 year old. And that's. That's like two right. extra layers of acting. So do you talk to Brad? Do you sort of agree on like, how does Benjamin do blank? How does Benjamin do this? Or does he go off of your lead? I think he went off of mine. Wow. Um, what happened was I I saw him doing a later scene. There was, you know, you know, you shoot out of order. Sure. And we there had to be a funeral scene sometime. And I saw him at a distance. I was up here. He was down there. That's the only time I ever saw Brad Pitt until op- the movie opened, until uh, we had our, our premiere. Uh, so what they did is they shot my stuff. Then Brad Pitt watched what I was doing. 
Uh, there's one scene where I'm flexing my, because I still work out every day because I like staying in condition because I want to live a long time. Yeah. I enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, stay sharp and it helps you, it helps you emotionally and mentally. Of course it does. I, I, you know, as well as just health, general health. So yeah. um, there's a scene in a bathroom in the film where I look in a mirror and I see hair on my arms and I flex my muscles. Right, I know. And I had just done it straight. Brad Pitt, when they did the face, because he then they, they took my face out, put his face in, and was with his makeup, he did this big smile because he said, "I'm stoked," you know. That's and I I had not thought of that, and he did that. So there was a lot. Of, it was a collaboration without ever having collaborated with him, you know, because you had a genius named Fincher who was kind of knowing what was going on there. And um, so when I met him, all he said to me. This is the craziest goddamn thing I've ever done. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so Angelina Jolie, on the other hand, was so sweet and nice. She said, thank you, Brad, and I have been watching you now for months, and we appreciate what you've done. Oh. And I, see, I don't think you need, that's better than money to me. Yeah. Because that's, that's what it's all about, this is having someone appreciate whatever performance you do. And, and just that sense of completely unprecedented collaboration you know like you collaborate with everybody on set to a certain oh, yeah. degree but to like collaborate on one character with a movie star of that stature and ha and to have him have the humility to be like i'm gonna follow this guy's lead yeah um is uh is, is pretty great you grew up in you know you were born in new york did you grow up there that's correct uh for 12 years <laughs> for 12 so for okay 12 years of uh 12 years in new york uh, my mom, because I could read when I was about five or six. I was an early reader. And I actually remember in grammar school getting up and reading a story while other kids behind me were acting it out and stuff. And my mother was impressed with that. And she had a friend at CBS in New York. I think his name was Bennett. I can't remember his last name. And um, she said, you know, Bobby can read. He said, all right, let's read him. And uh, I read for them. I said, oh, okay. And so I did some kid parts on radio, which is a great way to break in, you know. I did a show called The Eternal Light, which was a, a, done by the Jewish American Seminary every, I guess, every week on NBC. And I did, you know, it was, it was again, I started as fun. I could read this stuff. I could make believe. Kids have that sense of make believe, which we should never lose. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I would just read these parts and... I, I only play kids, I, but later I learned to do voices and stuff. And it's funny, full full cycle. In the 80s, they were trying to bring radio back with a thing called the Sears Radio Theater mm -hmm. through CBS Affiliated Network. And I got to do a bunch of those with a with some of my heroes, Hans Conried and Marvin Miller, all these names nobody knows. I know anymore. Hans Conried. Uh, Hans Conried is in a bunch of great movies. Yeah, Hans Conried Hans is in... Great. You know what Hans Conried is in? He is in... The only movie written by Dr. Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor. That's the one. Five Thousand Fingers. Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor. Yeah, I love Hans Conrad. Um, and I, you know, I work with. I, by the way, parenthetically, I work with Dr. Seuss because for a long plot time, I played the Cat in the Hat character, and I would do storytelling for kids, not out of a book, but I memorized all of them. Oh wow! And I did the Cat in the Hat. And they, I would do an hour show, maybe an hour and a half for kids, and I toured with that myself i when in between shows and in between getting jobs i got those jobs by doing that and by storytelling 
I try to open up kids' imaginations as mine have been open. You know, I grew up with radio, mm-hmm. which meant yeah. you couldn't see it, so you had to imagine. Theater of the mind. So trying to visual, yes. Well, that's what they call it. It's a cliche, but it's no, true. It's, yeah, it's a cliche um, because it's true. But yeah. then what I try to do, yeah, it is. Um, and then when I do these shows for kids, I would say, look, I'm going to tell you this, but you've each got little television sets in your head. They only belong to you. So you won't see what your friend sitting next to you will see, but we'll all see a great picture together of what we want to see. So what I want you to do is when you go home, I don't want this to end with me just telling you the story. Do something with it. Draw a picture of what you saw in your head. Tell somebody else about it. Spread the word. So what they would do is I got, I used to get pictures of some of the stories I did. And they would, some were, stolen from Seuss, but some were their own ideas. And I was thrilled with that. Teachers in schools would send me pictures. Oh my God. Um, I did, there was the Watts riots mm-hmm. many years ago. And I, so nobody wanted to come to Watts for Christmas. So I, I went in my cat in the hat costume and gave out presents like Santa Claus and did a show for kids for about an hour and a half for Christmas. Oh and when God. I got the pictures The Christmas back, after the Watts riots? I'm a white guy. Yes. Wow. I'm a white guy, right? I know. You can't be any whiter than me. Uh, when they sent the pictures back of the stories I told them, they had it was about a little boy named Pierre. It's a Marie Sendak story, and all the kids love this story. There once was a boy I named Pierre who always used to say, I don't care. Who only would say, hey, I don't care. Yeah. I did it though as straight with it rather than sing it. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, the pictures I got sent back of Pierre had him as a black kid. All the black kids saw him through their own eyes, which is exactly what I want to do. Yeah. And so the whole idea uh, was just to get kids' imaginations going because I think if we use our imaginations and uh, try to visualize something other than the life we're living, maybe things will get better for everybody. And that's how we use, we can use our profession to do good. I think. God willing. Anyway. What did you get to see? <laughs> Not only have a good time, but spread the word. Yeah. Did you get to see a lot yeah. of theater growing up in New York? Where in New York were you? Which which borough? Uh, Manhattan. I was in Manhattan. I lived uh, near the Cloisters, way uptown. Oh, okay. Washington um, Heights. 181st. Yeah. Washington Heights. I was a Washington Heights kid. Um, I grew up with a love and interest of... Um, for the American Revolution, that period, the colonial period, because they had Washington's headquarters about three blocks from where I lived. That's correct. It was so great. And I go in there as a kid, and they had this little museum. But yeah, and I, yes, my mother took me to theater from when I was very little. Saw a lot of movies, of course, too, but particular because I had a movie theater around the corner. Hang on one second. Hang on one second. Were you right near, what's that enormous, beautiful movie palace? on like 179th. Is that the one you're talking about? What's it called? Well, I was near there. It was a theater called, the, there was the Coliseum Theater. There was there was so many theaters. There was Lowe's 175th yeah. Street Theater. I remember as a kid, it was an MGM thing. In those days, the studios studios ran the thing. But, my, uh, but we go to the theater and I remember we were living, my mom had a, was getting a divorce, so we went through a whole thing. And we lived at the Royalton Hotel on 44th Street. And I'd never lived downtown. I was always an uptown kid. We'd take a bus downtown to see movies and stuff. So yeah, I was yeah, living yeah. the Royal Town. I'd take a walk and I would see all those theaters. I'd say, Mom, look, there, all these theaters are going on. She said, yep. 
I said, but I noticed that theater, that play was going to open. And then today it's not open anymore. What happened? It played one around one night and died. And so I, you know, and I began to learn about that. And I would go past all these places. So I was just imbued with this kind of stuff. My mom was not a Hollywood type mother, but she, but I told her I was so interested. So she, she went with it. But she did help me get onto radio, which was a, a big deal. You know. So I, I grew up on so, 44th Street. And I had the same experience oh, of walking around, yeah, um, uh, in the seventies. But um, I, I would do the same thing of like seeing shows open and then vanish, and and there being like a little refund sign in the window. And I think if you do that before <laughs> yes. you become an actor, you have a clearer idea of the peaks and valleys of this business than someone who grows up in, say, Ohio. Oh my god. <laughs> Yes, yeah, I oh, think yeah. I, I think you and I were a little more braced <laughs> I, I, for the realities. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll tell you this. I remember, and this is how old I am. When I was going through this, I walked down the block, and there was Frank Fay and Harvey, Helen Hayes, and a thing called Happy, Happy Birthday. Was it something like that? Um, I mean, all these different shows were playing there. That have become famous. Mr. Roberts was playing with oh Henry my. Fonda was playing. Oh my God! So, yeah, and I couldn't go see that. I asked my mother, "I want to see that play." She said, "No, I don't think it's because it was uh, a big deal with because a lot of dirty words." There was swearing. So I, there was swearing on, on Broadway in Mr. Roberts. Yeah, it was a, a huge scandal at the time. That's a, one of my happiest memories. Uh, of theater when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and it really did something for me. Was a play called Allegro that Rodgers and Hammerstein did, um, and that I found out much later was Stephen Sondheim's very first job in theater. He has he was kind of a protege of Oscar Hammerstein II, mm-hmm. and he worked on that show. And if you've ever seen that show, that show is done without sets. It's done like with a Greek chorus. Mm-hmm. It's done with unusual songs for Roger and Hammerstein. It's done with recitative, like through the show, like an opera. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's the most amazing show. It's got songs. There's a couple of songs that were popular at the time, but mostly the score isn't well known. The show isn't no. Well it's, known. it's it's it's, a, it's the most obscure flop. Rogers and Hammerstein. It's most it's the most obscure of of that canon. Um, and but they also they always kind of felt like it wasn't the finished. Influence that had on. Oh my God! You saw that? That's incredible. They, yes, that's. I, I, I mean, got, I mean, I'm talking to uh, the I, I'm, original I'm, cast. That's nuts! Wow. So yeah, what? And, and have seen it, and it impressed me so much. Yeah. Well, because okay, it's so ahead. minimalist in its staging when it's done. Exactly, it, it, and I thought somehow I thought in recent years how much that influenced on him. The fact it was so different, so yeah. unusual, such such a departure that he said. I don't want to do ordinary. I want to do something. Yeah. I want to do a musical based on the people who assassinated presidents. I want to do a musical about <laughs> just with the with the protagonist of the the play to be the to be Japan. So he did right. Pacific Overtures. <laughs> Pacific Overtures. Yeah, he yeah. wanted to do something out of the ordinary. I'm a huge Sondheim fan. I'm a huge Sondheim fan, and my my big claim to fame is not Allegro, but. Um, my my younger friends are dazzled that I saw the original Broadway production, not cast, but production of Sweeney Todd, um, after Len and Angela had oh. left. Oh, 
but I saw I saw George Hearn and Dorothy Loudon, which is uh, nothing to sneeze at either. Um, oh man, this is we're gonna and go George all Hearn over the place. George Hearn was brilliant. Well, George Hearn was brilliant. He's played the role more than anybody <laughs> else in the ensuing <laughs> years. Um, uh, oh yes. my God, we're going over the place I was thinking That's of right. in Washington Heights is the United Palace. Is the, is oh, the okay. theater I was thinking of up on um one one seventy sixth one seventy six yeah um but yes the the Coliseum was also uh up there yeah so where do you go after so you move when you're twelve where do you go when you're twelve here. To Los Angeles, California. Really? To act? No. My mother... Well, I think deep in the back of my mom's head there might have been that. But I think basically to get away from New York. Mm. We were, grew up in New York. My mom was tired of it. She also... There had been some threats and things. There wasn't a happy divorce. So she... We wanted to be 3,000 miles away. Understood. She had always wanted to come to, to, to LA. So I... Came here, uh, ready to go to, I was 12 years old, went to good junior high here, John Burroughs Junior High here, to Los Angeles High School, to, to Santa Monica College, to UCLA, and all the way. I did a little acting in, in high school. Oh, I did a lot, actually, in high school, but I didn't do anything professionally. Not, not, I think they wanted to keep away, they wanted me to focus on my schooling. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they did. They wanted me to graduate to learn something. My mom was smart, so was my my stepfather. They said, listen, you wanna have something to back you up, just in case. We know you wanna act, you know you wanna perform, you never stop performing. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we wanted to, just in case, to have some. And fortunately, I had, didn't have to do it a lot, but I've always had it in between jobs, and it's never bothered me. It's always been, okay, I'll do this, and especially, uh, you know, as I got older, hey, you had to support yourself or you know, yeah. or support a family, which I did. Um, you got to work. What kind of work? What kind of work were you doing on the side? What kind? Generally, in in later years, when I when I was married, had kids, um, I did um, what's called market research, not telemarketing. Market research when you call people and they come in and do interviews about mm-hmm. products and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So I figured, hey, I was using my voice which I'd use for voiceover and right. stuff anyway. So I would use it and was would get people and set them up. And I never had to try to recruit them. I just had to double check. They knew where they were going and things like that. Right. It taught me a lot about how to get around this town, which can be crazy sometimes. Uh, yeah, well, it's not on so, a grid. But generally, I was able to work. That Yes. Oh, my God. But generally, I was able to work. Uh, even when I wasn't working as an actor, I got to work for an agency in charge of a voiceover department. I couldn't negotiate because I'm a member of the Guild, right. Screen Actors Guild, and Equity right. and all that, and after. So, but what I did was I would I made a, a big tape of all my voices. I would send them in for various jobs. Then the ch- chief agent who could do it because I couldn't negotiate right. uh, would negotiate for me. But I got to. And what happened with that was I sent in a recording and my agent said, hey, you know what? Put your voice on it too, just for fun. Well, I couldn't do that. because. But I talked to the guy on the phone and uh, as a follow-up to sending in the recording, said, you know, I'm talking to you. Would you come in? 
an audition, and I got I got two I got two cartoon series out of that. I got Doctor Doolittle. I got one called um, Oh God, what was the name of that? Kid Video, which are all cartoon shows. Uh, Doctor Doolittle ran a couple of years. Kid Video ran three or four years until they farmed out our voices to Canada, where they had somebody do them for less money, of course. But yeah. But that that ha so I had to leave the agency yeah. doing that because I was working. <laughs> did you did you when when you're when you're working for this voiceover agency were you getting to listen to other people's auditions? Um, yes, I would. I, I would I would actually prepare 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 their auditions for them. In other words, I would say, okay, you're doing this. Come in. I would always have them come in. What well, the reason I got this? I was with this agency and my voiceover agent left. And nobody was going to replace them. I said, "Hey, I I need that. What, what what's going to happen?" They say, "Okay, you 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 know so much about voices. You've done radio and stuff. Do you want to take over the department for a little bit? A little bit turn about a year and a half until until I got some work." And I, I <laughs> so I said, "Yeah." And I I had them prepare their tapes. I had them prepare one minute of their voices, of the kind of voice they did for animation, whatever, or if they were announcers to do announcing. One of my clients at the time was John Heaston. John Bud Heaston was an announcer who went back to the 30s. He was an older guy, wonderful man. God, I love this guy. And he had a history and he was, he did what, you know, you know the business. They, he would do what they call bumpers. Bumpers are when you kind of do, brought to you by, right. you know. They, yeah, they, the little things between that, commercials. And, he would do brought to you by and make a fortune. So you were talking for a moment about growing up um, in 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 Washington Heights and having a fascination mm -hmm. with the American Revolution, which leads me to ask you about the the several productions of 1776 that you've done, yeah. playing two different right. two different Continental Congressmen. Right, right. Well, one congressman. Um, uh, from, you know, from, uh, let me see, he was, oh, what was that? Now I'm having trouble remembering his name and I only played him so many times. But yeah, he was, uh, he was the congressman who had cancer. That's Caesar Rodney of the great state of Delaware. Caesar Rodney. Yep. Caesar Rodney. As a matter of fact, I remember doing a performance. We toured the show, a national tour for about a year and a half. And I played Caesar and... I was in Rodney Square wow. in Delaware. Oh my God. In Wilmington, Delaware. And there's Rodney Square outside the theater. And there's a picture of my character, a, a statue of my character on a horse. And I just couldn't believe it. There he was, you know. And I, yeah, I love doing that. The trouble with doing that show, I'm sure you know this, uh, maybe having done some shows, is I have this great scene where I collapse mm -hmm. in Congress, I have to be taken mm -hmm. out. And I don't come back for an hour and a half right. <laughs> because it's a three-hour show. Yeah. And and I so the the question is, what do I do all that time? Because I had to sit there. And I figured out I listened to the show. Yeah. I just listened to the show and enjoyed mm -hmm. the show and kept figuring what I was doing. What was Caesar Rodney doing? Because first thing I learned in acting was you don't just come on stage and go off. You go you come in from someplace, you go off to someplace else, if you, unless you're dead. So you, you just, so that's what, and so I figured, where am I doing now? And that would keep me completely alive. So that when I came back in, 
He, he was ready, because that's a long wait. Well, I did another show here in Los Angeles at the Mark Taper Forum, a show called The Mystery of, of Love and Sex. Mm-hmm. Well, I did this a few years ago. Yeah, pretty recent. And, yeah, and I had to not, I wasn't on stage at all, except for the last five minutes of the show. Mm. Played a character, walks in, was talked about before, come in, look around, light a cigarette, see this guy who is now completely naked on stage, make no comment, whatever, just look at him, very, not even look at the audience and just walk off. <laughs> they gave me a special place in the, in the curtain call. It was so nice. That was the nicest ensemble. But the reason is, and of course I won't get editorial on this thing, but Go ahead. the problem we have in Los, well, okay. Problem we have in Los Angeles is most of our shows, our equity shows, are cast out of New York. A lot. The only things we get to do here mostly uh, at the major theaters are being understudies. Mm-hmm. This was not an understudy. This was, they said, we figured we could cast it here is what they said. I said, okay. You realize you're not going to say anything. You realize you're only in for five minutes. I said, okay. But it, but I imagine oh, I it's the sort of thing where if you're talked about the whole play and then you finally show up, it kills. Oh, right? yeah. Your entrance must destroy the audience. It was, it was the laugh. Has to be like the most reliable laugh. laugh of your career at that point, right? Oh, yeah. yeah absolutely. I, yeah, I didn't have to do a thing. It was so Jack... <laughs> It was, it was so Jack Benny. Oh yeah, of course. I, I only want I almost wanted to do this. You, you, you know? slap your face, I just would yeah. come out and just stand there and just it was it. Like, yeah, it was so much fun to do. Anyway, well by the way, I'm mentioning Jack Benny to you. Um what I realize is common names, and this is what's kept me, I guess, balanced in this business. Um things just pass. I was having dinner uh, at one night at a restaurant called Paley, which is no longer there, near the old CBS radio uh, station on, on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. And I said, the last time I was up here, I was waiting online for the Jack Benny show. I said this to the waiter and he said, who? Oh, no. Oh, no. You know, and I figured, okay, oh, dear. it passes. Oh, dear. It passes. No matter how famous you are, how much money you make, it passes. Yeah. So just enjoy the hell of it while you. That can, is the you know? very positive and, spin and, on that moment. See, I got really sad when when you said that, but now, but I, I like your attitude of like, look, Jack Benny probably had an amazing time. He was the king of the deadpan straight man, um, oh, and yeah. and there was the nobody best. quite like him. Without him, he's like That's the right. he's on that lineage that leads to Bob Newhart and Bill Murray and all like the great like sort of dry smart asses through the reactors the reactors they're well great reactors the great reactors exactly um and it's interesting yeah. because that's a key thing you're talking about right now in terms of 1776 is when i started acting the first thing i was told was the hardest thing in this job is listening and hearing something like it's mm. the first time you're hearing it for the first time night after night after night and especially on a show like 1776, yeah. when even when you're on stage, you're not necessarily doing anything. You're off to the side listening to Adams, you know, bark at John Dickinson or whatever. Yeah, I know the show really yeah. well. But um, uh, <laughs> I'm a massive <laughs> fan. But um, you have to listen. Yeah, you've you just got to listen. sit there and you've got to be engaged and, and you can't go through your shopping list. You've got to, you know, this is the fate of a new nation hangs in the balance every night. <laughs> 
And that's why it was easy because I could listen. I enjoy yeah. listening. It's a great book. That is, I, I work with great actors and it was just wonderful fun. I did it, God, um, with Orson Bean once playing. Remember Orson sure, Bean? Sure, yeah, sure. Just, who just passed just away a, a couple horrible, of years horrible ago. Horrible accident on, uh, on Venice Boulevard. Oh, yeah. Right, not far from where I live oh, in wow. Venice, California. Um, so, but Orson played Benjamin Franklin at, at one point. And, That's good casting. You know, as, yeah. Good oh, yeah. Who, who, are your, who are your John Adams? Oh, my God. I, there was a bunch of... And I'm trying to remember this man. He was... If you remember the... I wish... I'm so bad with names. You know, that's the first thing that goes are names. I'm told. Um, I'm told. He was in... I'll tell you that what part he played very famously. When when Mel Brooks did uh, the his Robin Hood movie. Mm-hmm. You know, remember Mel Brooks did the Robin Hood uh, thing? Men in Tights, yeah. Men in Tights. He was the the villain in in Men in Tights, and he played Roger Rees. Roger Rees, the nicest human being I ever met. Famously uh, nice guy, yeah. Wonderful. Famously nice. He was so great. He, as a matter of fact, he insisted. You know how there are star dressing rooms. Mm-hmm. He insisted we all use a big dressing room and all get made together. He said we're a Congress, and we're all going to be together in this thing. This is an ensemble, and that's how we're going to. And that's. It was such a wonderful experience. We were doing this show, by the way, when nine eleven. Oh wow! We, how does that change? Just a little. How does that change the way uh, you approach something like that? Well, what we would do was, you know, usually you go out afterwards, you meet the audience, that kind of thing. We did this. What we did was we had posters of the show. We had the thousand made up. Autograph them. The whole company autographed them, and we sold them to raise money for the fire department in New York. All the people that had helped, and everything like. And we would have, uh, I mean, it was really quite a time. But we realized people were so moved by the show at that time because of what had happened. Yeah, it, it was amazing. The timing couldn't have been better. I guess. No, I guess not. But, and then Roger, Roger had to go. I remember he had been in the show Cheers for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he had to go back east because one of the producers of Cheers was killed in the in the plane crash. The, oh, uh, crash yeah, uh, uh, David Angel. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I remember and, that. And so he he went back for his funeral and had to leave the show for a couple of nights. And I remember his his understudy went on, but Roger was. Now I gotta say he doesn't look like John Adams. John Adams is a little rotund guy. Yeah, no, Roger Adams. But, yeah, Roger Reese is a very sexy John Adams. <laughs> <laughs> right, but he was excellent. Oh, he wow. was so good, so convincing. And uh, I work with a lot of good actors doing. There were so many, but it was, it was a great experience. And then I did instead of doing um, that character, I did the uh, the guy who is kind of cleans up. You know, I'm talking about the custodian McNair. You know who I mean, McNair. And I love McNair. I want the audience to know that, that I am not Googling these facts, by the way. I know 1776, really. It was because it, it, it used to show on TV every July 4th. I think TCM still shows it. And it was it was oh, yeah. our July 4th ritual in my family um, Me too. was to watch we 1776 with, with, you know, William Daniels and um, Howard De Silva, who was having his first big film role after being blacklisted, which is a fun bit of trivia. <laughs> yes, He'd been a big character actor in pictures mm-hmm. and then was blacklisted into, and then came back as the best Benjamin Franklin. My God, oh my God he's great. so funny. He just owned he, that he's role. He's so funny in that part. 
Um, and uh, and and Ken yeah, Howard, and that you know. was that's the whole Broadway cast. Yeah, Ken Howard mm-hmm, was in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I got to work with Ken Howard later. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful show. Anyway, I did that for a couple of years. It was really really interesting. Uh, yeah, what was interesting was maintaining performance. As you know, that's always hard. It's like I did Snoopy for two two years ago. That more, was the first LA production and, of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Is that right? With, with yes, with Gary Burkhoff, as Charlie Brown, yeah. who had been the original Charlie Brown, who later did Radar and uh-huh. Nash, and with Judy Kay. Uh, when Judy Kay got the role, I had never seen her before, and we were there was the night we all got cast. There was like four groups of six that they put together because there's only six people right. in the show. And they move them from group to group. They'd move an actor here, move an actor like chess uh-huh, pieces. Uh-huh. And the producers were there, the director. These are the original producers from New York, uh, Gene Person and uh, the director, Joe Hardy. And they'd move them around. And they said, okay, this looks like the group. And there we were. Oh, wow. They were the group. And the reason I got I think I got this was when the show in New York, I heard it was for people five foot six and under. And the idea of being one of the characters and particularly Snoopy appealed to me. So I sent in a picture. I sent in a funny thing with it. When I went into audition where they had this cattle call, which you know is when everybody can audition. Yeah, yeah. I went in and there was a picture of me on the board, the picture I had sent. They were saying, oh, there you are. We loved your letter, and we want. We were hoping you'd come in. Wow! I couldn't believe. It. So wow. I auditioned. I sounded. My audition song was "Real Live Girl" from uh, Little, uh, Me. Little Me, the musical. Yeah, yeah. And and um, so for, for our listeners, can you do a couple bars of uh, of uh, uh, "Real Live Girl"? Yeah, I can. Pardon me, miss, but I've never done this with a real live girl. Straight off the farm with an actual arm full of real live girl. Pardon me if your affectionate squeeze does something to me and buckles my knees. I'm simply drowned in the sight and the sound and the scent and the feel of a real live girl. That was, yeah. It's great because it's <laughs> I, a slow song that can show that you can hold yes. a note, but it's also kind of a character funny song. So it, it oh, strikes yeah. a couple of boxes. Course, scent. Yeah. The scent, and I do yeah. like a dog. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. You know, well and played. I thought it was a perfect. Well played. Uh, perfect. That's an excellent choice. I try to pick good, <laughs> good songs for audition. How do you approach, I mean, aside from, from your, your keen sense of smell, how do you approach a role <laughs> as iconic as Snoopy? You know, how do you go in there and go, how am I going to humanize this guy who he's, it, it, Snoopy's interesting in the show because he never speaks, but he does get to sing. Well, he, in, in the, in the uh, cartoon shows, but on in the actual show, he talks all through the show where you get his thoughts. Oh, yeah, of course. He That's speaks right. That's his right. Does he speak to anybody? He else in he doesn't speak to any of the other characters though right is that no the deal? He, he, he he monologues he doesn't yeah he he does he kind of sits on top of the doghouse and talks to the audience right right right, 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 right. and then he or well 
something will happen when it expresses thoughts. Um, one of my favorite was, was uh, when he saw in the doghouse and says, yesterday I was a dog. Today I'm a dog. Tomorrow I'll probably still be a dog. There's just so little hope of advancement. <laughs> there know, is such, I love doing There's that. this undercurrent of existentialist despair in Peanuts. <laughs> oh, always. Always. All always. the way for 40 we, years, there was just this sense of like, is this all there is? <laughs> Being communicated by a beagle and his well, five look, friends. Well, look at Linus. Yo, huh. Linus and Charlie Brown with a bag on his head. And, you know, Gary Burka was brilliant because he would... He was Charlie Brown. He he had for one thing a round head. Yeah. And then he just he had this way of just kind of looking for what he was going to say. There was this kind of hesitancy about him because he couldn't because he didn't want to say anything direct because it might offend somebody. And he just kind of did that. And he was brilliant. I love working with Gary and Judy Kay, who was the perfect. Lucy. Well, I, I looked brilliant. her up. She she works all the time. I've seen her in a couple of things. I think I saw her in Ragtime on Broadway about 20 years ago. She was yes. playing Emma Goldman. Yes. And I think she's doing Wicked brilliant. right now uh, in New York. I think she's playing Madame Morrible in Wicked. She does a lot of things. Yeah. She's um, Powerhouse Yeah, she won, she won a Tony Award for being in Phantom of the Opera and playing Carlotta. That's right. She kind of, she won a Tony for that. She's been nominated for Tony. She's wonderful. She's my very successful friend. Judy <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about. And, and I, I ask everybody this: who are who are some character actors? Not necessarily the big movie stars, but I, and I have a feeling that you're a lot like me. You were drawn to the character guys. It became very clear oh, early yeah. on that you were maybe not going to be five foot three. So you decided that you yeah. were you were going to like sort of focus on these guys in the margins of the screen. Who were the guys you responded to when you were coming up? Oh, I loved so many of them. And I still love them. You know, I still love the silent guys, the, the early talking. But I think my favorite actor as a kid growing up was Claude Rains. Oh, yeah, sure. I love I love Claude Rains. Um, I'll tell you who was my big influence, and not as a, not a character actor, but as a star, a difficult star, I, I, which I've recently found out. Uh, as a matter of fact, almost manically difficult, was Danny Kaye. Oh, yeah. Danny Kaye, the reason I got to do dialects as a character actor is because I loved Danny Kaye, and he could do, anybody could be a Russian, he could be yeah. a Russian very easily, like talking Russian, and then he could be so British. Yes. And I learned to do English because of Danny Kaye. And I recently did a German part, where I have to be a German person from World War II for something. Was that, so was I, that in, uh, I, wait, was that on Perry Mason? You had a little bit of an accent on Perry Mason. No, no, no. This is this is upcoming. This hasn't been aired yet. Okay. This is something I did this past uh, winter. Uh, I'm not really supposed to talk a lot Fair about enough. it, but they are going to do a second season of Hunters. That that series oh, yeah, that Al Pacino sure, did. Sure. The Al Pacino. Uh, and Nazi most of it show. takes place. Right. Not most of it takes place in the '70s, but my character takes, which I can't talk much about, but he take it takes place in the '40s. It's like a one-off thing, oh. and it was made like a film. And the and the producer of the show directed and wrote this episode, and so they really made a movie out of it, kind of. Yeah, yeah. And it was a great experience. I worked six weeks doing this thing, and it was absolutely remarkable. And I, it's going to be it's going it's the penultimate show. It'll be on this summer. Uh, it's the next to last, and I, I really enjoy doing uh, it. I work with some. Uh, 
so wonderful people. They get incredible so. people on that show. I talked to um, Dylan and Becky Ann Baker, uh, who yeah. have amazing. Oh, Dylan Baker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, who both, both were on, on the show. And, and just they got incredible New York theater people to do that. It was it was pretty impressive. Um, let's skip around a little bit. I want to talk about your time. We have been, have we? have we? been. I know. We're going <laughs> to we're gonna continue to do so. I want to talk um, about your experience on Next Generation. Um we get a lot of oh Star Trek. Yeah, we get a lot of Star Trek people on the show because of what the show is, you know, and and mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting because you're you're playing these sort of you're playing Ferengis who kind of hold all the cards, you know. Usually Ferengis right. are sort of you know they're they're uh, low status guys, but these guys are kind of have the upper hand for most of the episode, which is kind of. But it's also very, I think it's pretty early on in the in. The this was before the first one ever aired. You shot it before this it even aired. Pre- wow. Yes. So so this So they didn't know. That's a okay, I have I have a massive follow-up question. Did I mean did you cuz I mean I remember the controversy surrounding like how dare you reboot this show? You know, who you guys think you oh, yeah. are that you're going to go after the sacred text? Was there a sense of hesitation on set? What was the vibe like on set? Um I think it was well. It was it was fine. It was a, a nice set. Although yeah. the director I work with more technical than he wasn't much help to the actors. He was oh, pretty see. much interested in the special effects and technical stuff. But um, uh, the t- generally everybody okay. was very nice. They were, but they were very guarded. They were really not knowing I what bet. was going to happen. And and but Patrick Stewart yeah. was very cool. He was a cool guy, and he was the great actor on the set. And and uh, everybody else. Um, this is before Whoopi Goldberg was on right, the show right. before any of those people. It was just the basic original mm-hmm. cast. Mm-hmm. Data uh, was on, you know, and, and I said, I wonder what he's going to do, right, you know, right, with the white yeah. face and the whole thing. So it was it was all different. And then I, of course, my makeup was, as a Ferengi, took about yeah. two hours to do every day. Um, the thing is, I had worked with uh, Westmore before. Um on, on, on a movie called Masters of the Universe. Okay, I didn't realize, I, I didn't make that connection. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, he had done my makeup for that. And so it was it was easy to work with on this. And uh, I suddenly realized, am I going to spend the rest of my life in makeup faces? <laughs> I didn't know. But it's part of what you do. Sure, sure. And I find out I got to like it after a while. But, you know, it's with prosthetics. And, oh, God. Later on, I did a show called Angel. And I had this prosthetic, and this took three hours to do every time. And on Angel, I was a bug that got pinned to a wall. Oh, my like, God. <laughs> like, but it was a living bug. I mean, what did you do today at the office, Daddy? I, well, I was a bug today. I had a, had a, a vampire you know, uh, pin me to the wall like a bug, as one does, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, some people just take a lot of meetings. Of so anyway, I owe a lot... To, uh, this it's a good example for me how much I owe to casting people and why I'm very sorry we have to pre-tape yeah. everything now and why we can't go into offices. Not that I don't enjoy that because you, if you make a mistake and correct it, but you know, casting people have always good, been good about that with me. Um, I'd go, I went into the, this to the Star Trek and they, I, I read for it. I had read for Star Trek V. They thought I was a little much for hmm. it. I didn't get to do it. Um, but I went back for this one. And this was this for the show. And the casting director said to me, you know, if you bring it down a little and do this and made suggestions to me, we did it again and said, okay, now you can go into the office. 
sent me into the office. I read it for the producers and came out and I, they said, okay, I think you might, we'll see. And I got to do it. But that was because they helped yeah. me and guided me. This is yeah. what we don't have now by not yeah, being able to go that. into office. Nobody to say, you know, if you do this a little bit or that yeah. a little bit, you know. When I did Perry Mason, uh, they guided me and they said, listen, I'm listening to you. You could do about eight of these characters. So, you know, we'll pick out one. <laughs> you might get to do this. But they they encouraged me. I got a feeling of, you know, now it's kind of barren. Uh, I do to go to a professional pre-taping, you know, self-tape place. It costs me about 50 bucks, but I go in, they title it for me, it looks professional. They will give me feedback as I'm reading, and it really, really helps. But I, I feel so, so, but there's still that mm. contact. It's it's that contact with another human being, the person who knows mm -hmm. what they want. And if they know what they yeah. want, they can tell me, and maybe I'm able to do I started that doing, yeah. And, but this way. I, same thing, I started, yeah. Yeah, it's just very distant. I, I started going to a, a professional taping because I was just taping in my in my bedroom for, for months, but I started to go to professional tape because there's something about like, I'm gonna, put on some shoes and, you know, shave and pull my shit together and go drive exactly. to a place. And it feels That's like it. the old days a little bit. Like I am exactly. making an event out. I'm building my day around this audition. And it's worth, it's the, 50 worth bucks. the 50 bucks. Um, I, I found a place that does it for 20. I'll save it to I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, but um, it, it just makes it a little more professional psychologically. You know, it's just like it makes it like I am going to work now. And this is me getting up and going to work rather than just, you know, doing this. Exactly. And they tile it for you. They do a professional you look. They, they body mic you. You do the slight the way they. They yeah, cut it together yeah, yeah. very nicely, um, and they can, you know. And uh, also, I get people who who are directors when they and they're kind of yeah. doing this as to make a little money on the side, uh, and they will mm -hmm. give me some feedback, which is yeah. nice to have. So it's not quite doing it, but it's it's close enough, you know. But the, but the script is as new to them yeah, as it is. But to if you me. can get a guy with good instincts, it can really help. I want to ask you a question that actually. But thank God for. You were yeah. going to say, thank God for what? Yeah. I was going to say, thank God for radio, because radio is what gave me the idea of cold no, being sure. able to read cold. Because mm -hmm. I would go in, they'd hand me a script sometime, and they'd go, okay, we're going to mm -hmm. be on in 10 minutes. Yeah. And I would have to just get that. So I'm able, now I will say, you're playing type, you're playing off the top of your head. And sometimes that isn't always exactly correct. But at least you're giving some kind of performance uh, as cold as it can, you know. That's a, that is a, a, a wonderful skill. I'm going to ask anyway, you something um, that has come up a couple times now during the interview. And if it's – you have repeatedly said that people have asked you to pull it back a little bit on camera. Um, you mentioned this with Fincher. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it with Star Trek. Yeah. Those, are, those are gigs that are 20 years apart. Why do you think yeah. – you find yourself erring on the side of larger. Is it the theater background? It is. Okay. The theater background. Definitely. It's, uh, and I have yeah. tried very hard to hold back. But what's happened, my holding back for something 20 years ago is different because, as you know, acting now has yeah. gotten to be like this, where people just talk very quiet. Yeah. And it's gotten to be quiet. And it's so it's 
so I had to learn to pull back and pull back even further, like pulling out horses back sometimes. But um, it's become easier. For well, me. you're adapting, um, and that's fantastic. And I mean, you think of the actors I, who didn't adapt to changing styles. You got Jerry it. Lewis leaps to mind. You know, Jerry Lewis was still trying to do Jerry Lewis into the '80s, yeah. and it just wasn't working anymore. Uh, and no. And and besides, people that were familiar yeah. with the shtick after a while. Yes. So what yeah, happened to Danny yeah. Cage? Another really good example. He, enormous he talent. Was. Triple threat. And, yeah. of course, he was my yeah. hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was my hero. So, in a way, I guess I was emulating him. And then I realized I can't do that. I, you I know who would have been actually would have made the transition really well so. is Claude Rains. If Claude Rains had stuck around a bit longer, you watch the subtle work he's doing in Casablanca. Well, he was a T. Te- you know, he was an... Oh, well, yes. he was an acting teacher to Claude Rains when he came. And so he came, his first, what is his first role? This great actor from England comes to Hollywood and his right. first movie is The Invisible yeah. Man. We never see it, but they right. use that right. wonderful voice of his. But I, you know, Claude Rains went all mm-hmm. the way to Lawrence of yeah. Arabia. I think he would have. So, you know, this man was. A well, Lawrence of Arabia is an interesting point because you're starting yeah. to get that transition from the older guys into the Peter O'Toole's of that era who are grounding their performances a little bit more in mm-hmm. our world. So it's an interesting, it's one of those movies like um, like Streetcar right. Named Desire where you can see kind of two different acting styles on screen at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's very, and it works, but it's, it, it yeah, Vivian Lee and Marlon Vivian Brando Lee, squaring off there. Vivian They're Lee two wildly different approaches to the craft. And but that it it, it it's supported by the text. Yeah, it makes perfect but sense. It works. It's so exciting to watch that. Um, can we talk about Masters of the Universe for a moment? Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's a it's a fun um, canon movie from the '80s. You got Dolph Lundgren. You got a very young uh, Courtney Cox. I'd forgotten Courtney (laughs) Cox was in it. Her first movie. Her first movie. And you've got. The and and you know speak freely yeah. or don't speak freely. I won't judge you either way. You've got the famously mercurial Frank Langella. Um, what was he like on set? Was he cool? Yeah, he was. Okay, great. Yes. Okay. Yes, he was. Uh, now I now I wasn't privy to no everything, kidding. but we did share a dressing room. Right, uh, right, not right. a dressing room, makeup room, makeup room. You know, well, so I'd be. They were going to meet. Hours they, in the chair for both of you. Know, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, Prosthetic man. Yeah. Hours. He plays Skeletor in the chair. film for the listener, um, by the way. And for days. He's Skeletor, yeah. And he was he was great to work with. He he didn't even come on the set for weeks. They just held him. He they were paying him money for weeks and weeks. They were shooting other stuff. <laughs> Instead of using I didn't think that was very smart. Instead of using him right away, because we're paying him this fortune, yeah. do his stuff. And you know, no, but they what the problem was. The reason they didn't, as I learned later, is because they were having controversy mm. about what makeup they should put on him Interesting. As, as Skeletor. And uh, yeah, uh, my friend Anthony DeLongis did uh, Blade in that. Who's yeah, big bald guy with the with the sword sticking out of his head. Yes, yeah, sure, sure. And and he doubled when 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 uh, He Man is fighting. Skeletor. He got into the Skeletor stuff and was doing that for for Langella. Wow. So it was interesting. But Frank Langella was fine. My kids were young at the time. They came on he, on the set. He was so nice to them. Billy Barty was so great. Little Billy Barty, who was one of the Munchkins, wasn't he? Um, yeah, he had been. 
Billy Barty, though, goes back. Actually, I don't think Billy Barty was in Wizard, which is interesting. Um, I worked on, I did McDonald's commercials for so many years with the guys who had been actually been in Wizard of Oz, which is Jerry Marin, who just died recently, the last right. surviving person from Wizard of Oz, and uh, 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 some others. Billy Curtis, who is claimed to fame as he did the only midget uh, Terror of history. Tiny Town. Uh, and I work with him, but let me explain myself for one second. I have to interrupt you because I just I checked it up for one second. He was, in fact, old enough to have been in Wizard of Oz. He was not. Here's where I got confused. He's in a movie yes. called Under the Rainbow, um, which is about it's an 80s sex right. comedy about the the little people who were staying in the hotel across the from MGM. Of. The hotel, which is still there, by the way, right. and has a big mural right. in, the, in the ground floor. Um, yes. So this is where I got it locked in my head. He plays a actor playing a munchkin in the film about making Wizard of Oz, and that's where I got tripped up. So Billy Barty that's is exactly. not in Wizard of Oz. So save your angry yeah. emails, audience. I know you're coming at my for my head right now. <laughs> I caught it on the fly. Everyone back off. I'm so sorry. So you're working with Billy Barty. You're working with these. Christina. P yeah. Yeah. But but Billy but Billy uh, had been in uh, what was it Forty uh, Second Street and something when MGM wanted oh no there's something there's yeah he's in Forty Second Street when they do the number uh, oh, that's right. shuffle off to Buffalo he's the little kid in it so he was a child and he's he's just, in he's in he's Footlight like Parade too of movies and then I've, he, got his, I've, his, so, I've got his page up in front of me. Yeah, he's got yes, a ton of yes. crazy and, and, credits. Yeah, and then he did the first um, uh, fu fundraiser for little people, um, uh, oh, wow. uh, the golf tournament, which was his. And he did his major golf tournament. He used to have a kid show in Los Angeles here, so I got to talk to him about a lot of this Hit stuff. It. But I, I do have a story, which is kind of what happens in your career. My agent knows I'm short. So my agent sees a thing for little people. He sends me on it, not telling me it's for little people. So I go into the office and some, one of my friends comes up and he's smoking a cigar. I say, what the hell are you doing here? Get the hell out of here. Get up along here. And I go, so, <laughs> and I say, I call my agent and say, uh, let me explain something to you. And I, he, he, there's he little and there's that. little. Um, that's amazing. Um, so I, it, I'm 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 scrolling through Billy Barty's yes. and I'm I'm reminded uh, <laughs> it, he was on uh, the Bugaloos, which reminds me that you were also a Croft superstar. And this was one of the things I got uh, very excited about um, when you were first yeah. pitched to me as a guest. You were a banana split. You were you the were the elephant. Split. Snorky. Yeah, Snorky. Snorky was the littlest one. Yeah, Snorky the elephant. Now, what happened was right. I was doing your good man, Charlie Brown, playing Snoopy at the Ivar Theater here in Los Angeles, uh, eight shows a week. And Joe Barbera happened to come see a show. He came backstage and said, you're small. I, I really, I'm doing this series it's with live people. It's my first live show. I'd love you to come in and audition. So I went a few days later out to the Hanna Barbera Studios, which is no longer there, unfortunately. And I went in and they tried the elephant suit Amazing. on me. I was too tall for the suit. It's the only thing I've ever been too tall for in my entire life. And, and, I, and I figured, well, they can always maybe do something with the suit. Though I didn't decide not to do that. I went back. They said, sorry. 
And I went back and did my show, still eight shows a week, and I get a call two weeks later. Uh, can you come out? Mr. Barbera would love you to come out to the studio. I said, what for? They said, well, uh, the person we chose is having a little trouble moving in the suit. And we realized you're fairly animated. Could you do that? So I came out and somehow they fixed this. Poor guy. He had, uh, he, he's in all of the, if you ever see the banana splits, yeah. they keep rerunning on various channels. Um, there's opening sequence mm-hmm. all across the, the Bay Bridge in San Francisco, things like that. Uh, that's him. And they and I was told by the other guys they used to have to move him because oh, wow. he had such trouble. He's a little guy who's smaller than me, and he had to had trouble just moving in that suit and animating it. Because what happens is to get the trunk moving. Here I are with this head on which you're seeing through the mouth. You're moving the trunk, which requires you moving your body a certain way so the trunk will move, and then you got to move the arms and move your face and run around, and so. It, it required a lot of work and it was tough. And meanwhile, I was doing a oh, show man. every night and doing this show during the day. So I was doing this show, shooting this show while doing Your Good Man Charlie Brown at night. So Variety wrote an article Amazing. and the headline was Snoopy Packs a Trunk. And wow, that's, that's solid Variety wordplay. Elephant. That's good so, stuff. <laughs> so anyway, we uh, I was able to do that for the weeks we were, uh, did, uh, uh, you know, the banana splits, we were like brothers. Oh, By the way, the three other guys were all real brothers. Oh, wow. They, uh, they were the, the Winkless brothers. Yeah, they were all, and their father, and their father had been the guy who, oh my God. who wrote the music for all the Kellogg's commercials. Um, uh, Snap, Crackle, Pop, that song, and all the, you know, Fruit Loop songs, all that stuff. But these guys, so they all thought I was one of the brothers. And by the way, our director the first season, a major director, was Richard Donner. And Dick Donner would say to us, Okay, guys. Amazing. Run. Richard Donner went on to do uh, uh, the the (laughs) the first two Superman (laughs) movies, and um, uh, and I think he did Lethal Weapon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Lethal Weapon, all Lethal Weapon. Holiday classic in my home. Uh, And many. I love Scrooge. It's so underrated. Scrooge is so funny. Yeah. 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 So and he's a great guy. Yeah, he's a great guy. He was a great guy. So we we enjoy. (laughs) So we had quite a time. We also introduced on the set, I, I'd never had it before, was Gatorade. This is back in 1967, 68. And so- Of course. We would we'd die in those costumes. So we, Amazing. Would, we got supplies. So you're, you're like, oh, what well, the hell is an electrolyte? But I guess I need so. it, you know? <laughs> <It's not. laughs> yes, I had no idea, but yeah. So that was a lot of fun. To, and um, that show was shot- you, as you shoot, you know, you shoot a movie for a set. That show was shot much the same way. This, they'd have a thing where a drooper, the lion, opens the mail. Oh, okay. And we'd shoot all those at one time. And then, but we'd have the big stuff where we'd run into the. It was really based on. What well, has laughing a real like laughing kids. monkeys like laughing quickly kids. edited um, in joke out joke? You know, just real. It, I, I see that pace. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we we of course mostly were there to introduce. Right, right. A cereal which they made, like a like a, a, a called something island, Danger Island, and we were also there to introduce cartoons. Uh, but that was our thing. And uh, 
I remember meeting Jack Wilde because uh, Croft was doing a series called H.R. Puffin Stuff with Jack Wilde, who had been Artful Dodger in in Oliver. So, uh, and he was uh, on, so we'd have a lot of guests from the other Croft shows that come on our show as guests. So it was, it was enormous fun. And and the lady who played Witchy was a a favorite of us. And we later did some voiceover work together. No, no. Uh, Martha Ray did another character. This is I can't remember her name now, but she was she was terrific. Names, if I had papers in front of me, I could. But she was really fun. Um, I uh, that was a, f- a good show to do. It was really uh, nice, and I was amazed how we uh, how the audience just took to it. And mm-hmm. even today, we did a, a couple of years ago. We did a, a con, one of those sure. conventions where you know people from the past past shows and things going. They decided to oh, one nice. for the 50th anniversary of um, the Banana Splits. So we went back to New Jersey, and uh, some of the people from the Today Show came That's, out. And well, I mean, I, 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 you the, know, I'm, so a lot of more fans of the show. So. Go ahead. It was, it was a lot of fun, and I was amazed. Yeah. I well, I mean, if if it was, yeah, I was you just know, amazed when, how many people grew still up remember in the, the show. '70s with only was, four channels, the Croft superstars and and, and Hanna Barbera were part of your DNA. Um, yes. uh, I'll tell you exactly where I where how I screwed this one up. Martha Ray was the boss witch, which Absolutely. by the way is hilarious. I'm just realizing Martha Ray was the boss witch on Bugaloo's Billy Hayes was witchy poo. I had to look it up. I had to look it up. Um, yeah, no, she was Billy she was, Hayes. She was really fantastic. That's who yeah, I mean that is such she was a uh, no. It would have driven both of us crazy. Poo. It would have yeah. driven both of us crazy. I promise you. Um, Thank you because uh, uh, you're new here, but that's how my head works. It just I would have I would not have slept. <laughs> um, I want to ask you before we wrap up if there is a role in your storied <laughs> career that that kind of slipped through your fingers, one that you were like, ah, yeah, I'd love I want that one, and then it went and 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 it doesn't have to be a a a bitter thing. It doesn't have to be a a long-standing grudge fine if it is but um but just something that like we'd be surprised like oh man robert towers was in the mix for that no kidding okay there's two parts one one that i auditioned for and came very close to getting and that's for radar in nash really Uh, gary burkhoff and i both were auditioning for radar gary had done a test months before for fox he was i mean they knew him uh from you know doing the show in new york um, and Gary was really more right for the part than I. But w- I was going out to Ingo Preminger, Otto Preminger's brother, who was in, in ch- one of the producers for MASH, out at Fox. And I would go out and read and do that, come back. And Gary and I shared a dressing room, but we never say what we're going out for. It's bad luck, right? right. So I said, how was yours? Uh, my audition, I went out. How was yours? Oh, very nice. They liked me. I, I wish I could tell you about it, but yeah, bad luck. So one night, we're getting ready to do the show, and Gary walks in in fatigue. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> and I said, uh-oh, what were you up for? And then he told me. <laughs> oh, that's so cruel. Oh, my God. That's, what a dick move. <laughs> what? So hang on, So this is for... Well, he didn't know I was up for that part, you know, and, and for the original film. And later on, Robert Altman came and saw our show, and he came backstage. We had a lot of people come backstage. Uh, Carol Burnett once sent us candy. and um, But yeah, he was... Uh, and the other is a part I wanted to do. 
I'm still willing to do it, even though a movie, musical movie of it just came out. And that's a part of Cyrano de Bergerac. I love, you know, I had done two years of uh, Shakespeare at Ashland, Oregon, mm-hmm. to playing rep. I did the Fool and King Lear. Is that the Oregon Shakespeare did, Festival? Uh, Is that OSF that you're talking about? Yeah, yes. sure. Yeah, in Ashland, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Uh, outdoors yeah. with uncut versions of the yeah. show. And no mics. Yeah. <laughs> it was really something in those days. Um, but Cyrano is such a wonderful mm. role. And when I was a kid, I saw Jose Ferrer do the film. Oh. And I said, oh, someday I want to do that part. Yeah. Because I love the poetry in it. I love the character. And what I loved about the most recent one, the wonderful, what's his name again? I, the, the little actor who's so brilliant. Dinklage, Peter Dinklage. Uh, who, who's Peter Dinklage. Um, is so wonderful, and he doesn't do the nose. Instead of the nose, yeah. instead of the nose, they make him small, yeah. and that's the reason. Yeah. And I thought, what a great idea, you know. But it's one of those points. But you know, hey, I've I've been so lucky with what I have done and what I hope to do in the future. Because hey, you never give up in this business. Um, that um, I have no I have no qualms about anything. I've enjoyed every step of the way. If there are negatives, they're out of my head because everything's been very positive. Let's end it there, Robert. Thank you so much, Robert Towers, okay. for, you, for your time and your, your honesty and, uh, and your patience. Thank you, John. And that is an episode wrap on Robert Towers, who is not on social media, which is probably why he seems so happy and healthy at 85. More, please. Forever. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Pew, pew, pew.